Well, thank you, Zach and Justin. Welcome back, Becca and Beth. And Dean, your family, it's wonderful to be with you on this Lord's Day. Now, would you please join me in a word of prayer as we prepare to open God's Word? Father, we thank you for the many blessings we are experiencing this moment. That we are in this beautiful sanctuary with the sun shining through the stained glass, reminding us that what unites us and brings us into your presence with boldness is the incarnation, resurrection, death of your Son, our Lord. Lord, we thank you for the church, for the family of God, the body of Christ. We thank you for the ability to gather, and we are mindful of those that we miss who for a variety of reasons can't be here with us. Lord, we thank you for the peace we've experienced this morning. And as we see a storm descend on New England, chaos and anarchy afflict Afghanistan, as we are mindful of those that are battling different uh, difficulties, physically, financially, relationally. We mourn, but we can't intervene, but you can. You are the all-knowing, all-powerful God, and so we do pray for your mercies. And now we pray for your Spirit to illumine these words that he inspired, and to allow our minds to understand, our hearts to embrace, and our wills to apply these truths that we might be wiser as a church community, help our community in Denton become wiser, and even in our role as Americans. Lord, would you make us a wise and godly nation, city, and church, we pray. In your son's name, amen. Well, Friday I was in a barber shop finishing a book about a barber. And both the barber and the book are named Jaber Crow, which is by an author named Wendell Berry. And Jaber Crow is a twice-orphaned rural Kentucky boy who learned barbering as an assistant in the Good Shepherd Orphanage, and then he plied his trade in Lexington until in a moment of overwhelming homesickness, he longed to return to his people. And when he walked through a flood to get back, on the night that he arrived, he found a vacated barber shop and he bought it. And from that day onward, he spent the rest of his long life lowering the ears, listening to the chatter, and participating in the life of Port William, Kentucky. In fact, the subtitle of the book is The Life Story of Jaber Crow, Barber of the Port William Membership. Now, Port William is an imaginary town set on the Ohio River between Kentucky and Ohio, and there in this small farming community, these group of families experience life together. Famine, flood, fruitfulness, Wars, depressions, losing sons to war, conflict among themselves. And he experiences, as someone who resisted all authority, who desired autonomy, he returns back to this community and embraces the idea of a community, of people who are located together, situated together, and live life together for good and for bad. And in order to save for retirement, he adds to his job by becoming the local grave digger and also the church cleaner. And one day in church, he has this epiphany about his town. Port William was a community always disappointed in itself, disappointing its members, always trying to contain its divisions and gentle its meanness. That's a nice verbing of a noun. Always failing and yet always preserving a sort of will toward goodwill. And I knew that in the midst of all the ignorance and error, this was a membership. It was the membership of Port William. 
And this idea of a community, flawed and failing and faltering in so many ways, and he was adding his own contributions to its errors and its woes, and yet nonetheless it was a community. And it was a community always trying to contain its divisions, to gentle its meanness, always failing and yet always preserving a sort of will towards goodwill. And that's what a church is intended to be. That's what people in a citizens and a community are intended to be, that we are members of one another, we are connected to one another, and for all of our shortcomings and failures, we are trying nonetheless to always will, not just goodwill, but God's will, to become the type of community that God desires us to be, to be a wise community, a community that follows God's words for how we are to live our lives. And so this morning, as we move towards the conclusion of our summer series on wisdom, Today we are going to be talking about wise communities and from the book of Proverbs specifically see five characteristics common to wise communities. The wise communities are righteous, they are just, they are compassionate, they are wisely led, and they are unified. So let's look at the first. Wise communities are righteous. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Now, we've already discussed righteousness in the context of individual wise virtues, about avoiding wickedness as avoiding wisdom's or folly's vices. But righteousness and unrighteousness can also characterize a community, a church, a city, a nation. And here we say that God looks down on nations, on communities, on corporate entities, and he's not impressed by the size of their population, the strength of their economy, the might of their military, the expanse of their territory, not how they did in the Olympics, not how they did in the Ryder's Cup, the Davis Cup, or whatever competition we have on the international scene. What God esteems is righteousness. And sin is a disgrace even to a great nation. So that's why we're grieving over what's happening in Afghanistan. Not simply because we know what's going to happen to the Christians and the foreigners, but we know what's going to happen to the Afghanis. And it's going to be terrible. And that's why nations in the UN sanction wicked nations to try to stave off and to limit and to discourage the atrocities that nations do against their own people and against other nations. And of course, we as Americans have our own atrocities that we have been disgraced by. That we imported slaves, we've exported immorality, that we have aborted babies. And so we can't look self-righteously on any nation. And we can celebrate the fall of the Soviet Union because we knew of its corruptions and repressions and gulags. And yet we ourselves, if we're honest, have to acknowledge our own unrighteousness and wickedness and shame. And the Bible says that a nation, that a community has to be righteous. Now, there are sections of our cities that we can't even walk through with our kids. Uh, our family took a family vacation several summers ago to go through the Big Five of Southern Utah, the parks. And we also stopped by the Grand Canyon. And on the way, we thought it'd be fun to see Las Vegas. So we stayed at Circus Circus, and someone said, well, you got to go to the fountains at Bellagio, which we did, and we wanted to see them lit. So we went right around dusk. And then leaving the fountain, we thought, well, we'll just walk around a little bit. And immediately we couldn't because there were all the immodestly dressed women trying to get people to visit various shows and shops. And so my son was hiding his eyes, and then on the ground were just strewn with all these lewd pictures and lascivious images. And so my son literally just had his eyes closed, his hands covered, leading him like a blind man, because you couldn't even walk the streets because of the wickedness and the luridness that was there. Uh, we were coming back from a family vacation one night and thought it'd be fun to see New Orleans and get some beignets, go to the French Quarter, 
And so we were walking around uh, Jackson Square, all the fun things, and then we walked too far to Bourbon Street. And you can't even walk down Bourbon Street. Uh, we exited one time a musical in New York. We took the kids to see Aladdin, this wonderful rendering of this Disney show. And there were topless ladies out on Times Square. And we couldn't even walk the streets of the city because of what was there. And every city has its areas. Every city has its quadrants. Every community has its shameful areas. And what the Bible says is we must pursue righteousness in every community of which we're a part. That as a church, we have to ward against arrogance and against bigotry and against fleshliness. And we have to pursue humility and welcoming everybody and loving all those and loving holiness. And within our families, we have to cultivate respect and responsibility. And we have to try to ward off disrespect and irresponsibility. And in our schools, we ought to be fostering the good and the true and the beautiful and not allowing the false and the ugly and the wicked to be taught. Uh, in our cities, as we vote and as we appoint, we need to be a voice for righteousness. We can't just allow unbiblical values to be promoted without a contrary voice saying, that's not right. We don't want that to represent in our community. We don't want that in our neighborhood. That as neighbors, we want to encourage people who greet one another, who help one another, who are considerate with one another, and not who just simply speed past and roar past I took a walk this morning. I like to walk and worship before I get ready for church. And there was just trash strewn everywhere. And I could tell where they had fed the night before by the different bags. And I just said, I, I don't want this in my community. And in our nation, we don't want a nation that is overtly thumbing its nose at God. And it matters who we appoint and who we vote for. And so in all of our communities, we must be pursuing righteousness. Because it's righteousness that exalts a nation. And sin is a disgrace to a nation. And we, in all the communities of which we're a part, in our workplace, we need to be fostering excellence and integrity and not allow mediocrity and deceit to enter in. And so, to be a wise community, we have to be a righteous community. And we, as God's children, have a role to play in fostering righteousness and in fording off wickedness in every community of which we're a part. Secondly, Wise communities are just. Now, when we talk about righteousness, we normally think of individual ethics. And when we talk about justice, we talk about the way that entities treat other people. And so righteousness can characterize a person, a company, a school, a church, a nation. But then the way that that entity or that individual treats other individuals makes it just or unjust. And the class, classic jef, definition of justice is rendering to others what is due them, of respecting the rights of others. And of course, we know that men and women are made in the image of God, and therefore, irregardless of what they look like, of how old they are, of their capacity to contribute to society in any way, that they possess dignity and value and worth and are to be treated with kindness and love and respect, and so justice is talking about the way that people treat other people or the way that communities treat the people within it. And the Proverbs will take just three of the many that could be touched on. To do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. So the first thing we need to know about biblical justice of a wise community is that God desires justice more than he desires religiosity. 
And in fact, God is provoked when unjust people have the audacity to come before him with religiosity when they have mistreated the people that he has made in his image. This is what the prophet Isaiah says. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams that fat of, and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. I hate your new moon festivals, your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me, and I am tired of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Therefore, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. God desires justice more than religious, religiosity or religious rights. The prophet Micah says the same thing. Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So God likes it when we gather and we sing his praise. God is honored when we honor him with the first givings of our first fruits. God loves when we spend time in his word. He wants us to represent him in his community, but only if we are treating his sons and daughters lovingly and only if we are treating those he makes in his image as people of dignity and worth. Injustice offends a just God and no amount of religiosity can cover over it and in fact it provokes him. Secondly, justice is impartial. Proverbs 24, 23 says, to show partiality in judgment is not good. So if you've ever been to the Supreme Court or pretty much any courthouse, Lady Justice is often there with her scales, balancing the right and the wrong. And what is wrapped around Lady Justice's eyes? A blindfold. Why? Because justice should not see in the plaintiff or the defendant their gender or their race or their age or their income or their educational level or their socioeconomic level. All that justice sees is this is the law, this is the standard of righteousness, and this is what is being proposed. And whoever is before me, either defending or accused, will receive a just judgment. Because all impartiality is offensive to God. Do you remember the book of James when he says that when the rich come in, what seats do they get? They'll come right up front. Front pew, front seat. And for those who are poor, what seats do they get? back of the room, if they get in the sanctuary. And he says, all such, all such discrimination, all such partiality is wrong. And so to be a just community, we must be impartial in the way that we treat everybody. And so irregardless of what they look like, smell like, sound like, if they walk into this church, they will be welcomed, embraced, and loved. And if they are a son and daughter of God, then they are our brother and sister in Christ and they will be treated as family because our father decides whom he adopts in the family, not us. On March 17th in 1966, Martin Luther King was invited to speak at SMU on justice. And as he was moving towards the conclusion of his address, he talked about how all the craze in psychology was maladjustment about people who were maladjusted to their culture, maladjusted to the times, maladjusted to their society. And he says, it's about time that we get some maladjustment around here. He says, we need maladjusted men and women. Men and women who will be as maladjusted as the prophet Amos, 
who in the midst of the injustices of his day cried the words that echoed across the centuries, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Maladjusted is Abraham Lincoln, who had the vision to see that this nation could not survive half slave and half free. As maladjusted is that great Virginian Thomas Jefferson, who in the midst of an age amazingly adjusted to slavery could scratch words across the page of history, words that lifted to cosmic proportions. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable, unable to be separated rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As maladjusted as Jesus Christ, who could say to the men and women around the Galilean hills, love your enemies, bless those who curse you. It's about time that through such maladjustment, we will be able to emerge from the bleak and desolate midnight of man's inhumanity to man into the bright and glittering daylight of freedom and justice. And with this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountains the slab of the stone of hope with this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discourse of our nation into a beautiful, sensitive brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to speed up the day when all of God's children in all of this nation, black and white, men and women, Protestant Catholics, Jews and Gentiles, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Justice is impartial. Finally, Justice requires advocacy. Look at Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the afflicted and the needy. This is the mother speaking to her son Lemuel about the obligation of kings to be an advocate for those who can't advocate for themselves. Because justice, if it's going to be impartial, if it's going to be righteous, need sometimes someone to stand up and speak for those who can't speak for themselves and to stand up for the weak and to use our social capital for those who don't have any connections and to use our access and our education and our influence for those who are uninformed, who are uneducated, who are uninfluential. And so we who have certain rights and privileges and capacities and opportunities are obligated to stand up. And the church has always been those who have advocated for those who were incarcerated and the ill and those who were mentally and physically challenged and for the aged and for the unburned and for the mistreated and for the immigrants and for the refugees and for the marginalized. And the church has always historically stood up in our better moments for those who couldn't stand up for themselves because justice in a wicked world doesn't just happen. It isn't just impartial even if every courthouse has the blindfolds. And so we have to be advocates for those who can't advocate for themselves. But a wise community is a just community because a wise community is a compassionate community. Look at number three. Wise communities are compassionate. He who oppresses the poor taunts the poor's maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors the maker. The rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his good deed. But he who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will cry himself and not be answered. Now compassion is a compound word from the Latin preposition com together and the verb compati to suffer or to sympathize. So it is to suffer and sympathize with someone else in distress. 
Uh, the dictionary definition that derives from this is, compassion is a sympathetic consciousness of others' distress combined with the desire to alleviate it. That we see someone, we see their distress, we feel for them in distress, and we feel compelled to do whatever we can to alleviate this distress. And we do so not because we expect any reward, not because we find them worthy of our compassion, but because we belong to a compassionate God who showed compassion to us when we were not worthy. Remember when Moses asked to see God's glory? And he says, you, no one can see my glory and live, but hide yourself in the cleft of rock and I will pass by you. And as he did, he revealed his glorious nature. And this is what the Lord God said to Moses. The Lord, the Lord God, do you remember the first attribute? Compassionate. compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. That the first self-description of God that is glorious about Him is our God is not indifferent, and our God is not callous, and our God doesn't delight in the pain and the sufferings of others. Our God looks on others in their distress, and He is compassionate. Do you remember why He delivered His people out of Egypt? It wasn't just that He had made a promise to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, but He couldn't stand their cries for deliverance anymore. And his heart broke and he came and he delivered them with a mighty right hand. And that's our God. And we are to be like him. God is holy, we are holy. God is compassionate, we are to be compassionate. And we are to be compassionate to those who are unworthy because God was compassionate to us when we were unworthy. This is how the book of Deuteronomy describes the commands of how Israel is to live as a wise community in the promised land. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten the sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow, the most helpless in society, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all your work of your hands. Now, don't miss the connection. Everybody wants God's blessing. Everybody wants abundant crops. And what is it contingent upon? Did you leave some margin for the marginalized? Did you leave some remnant for the refugees? Did you leave some abundance for the widow and the orphan that had lack? When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the alien, the orphan, the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not go over it again, Fred. It shall be for the alien, the orphan, the widow. And now here's how he concludes this charge. And whatever you grow, olives, grapes, grain, leave some for those who don't have any. For you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and therefore I am commanding you to do this thing. You were helpless, you were in bondage, you were in need, and in that moment I came and I was merciful to you. And so when you see others in their want and their bondage and their need, you be compassionate to them. You're not better than them. You're not more worthy than them. You're not more righteous than them. And yet I was compassionate to you you be compassionate to others. We are all beggars. Um, when Martin Luther died, they found in his pocket uh, a scrap of paper that uh, said in Latin and in German, hoc est verum vir sind alle pettler. This is true, we are all beggars. And yet God gave us the bread of life. 
And so now we go and tell other beggars where they can find food also. When God walked among us, Christ felt compassion for the crowds and the ill and the crippled and the lepers and those that others were ashamed of and shunned and fearful of. When the early church first formed, it says in Acts 2 that they were selling their property and possessions and were sharing them as anyone might have need. What was the qualification to get the help of the church? If you had a need, we needed to meet that need because family takes care of itself. In Acts 4, it says of the way the Christian community cared for itself, there was not a needy person among them, not because they believed a prosperity gospel, but because all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales, lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had, not the ability to repay, not influence, not the opportunity to further and advance the church's cause, but as any had need. If there was a need in the body, the body met the need because that's what a body does. If there was a need in the family, the family met the need because that's what a family does. And through the centuries, it has been the Christians that have formed the orphanages and the schools and the soup kitchens and the hospitals and all the caretaking facilities. The reason that there's Methodists and Presbyterians and hospitals and schools is because it was the Christians that did this. And we need to rise up and do that again. Because a wise community of God's people is a compassionate community. Because we serve a compassionate God and we are a community of those who have received compassion from our God. Nextly. And I'm sorry, I've got one other application here. Um, this means that we have to leave our very comfortable, insulated isolation. Uh, we've do you notice that fewer people today make eye contact in the stores, on the streets, in the whatever? People don't look at each other anymore. And we avert our eyes. And so we hide away in our homes. We, as one person said, get into our home, step into the garage, step into our social isolation bubble, go in our social isolation bubble to our office, sequester there, get back in the bubble, pull into the garage, door shuts behind us, go in, turn on the blue tube, and we never have to see another human being if we can help it. Except the Amazon delivery person and the pizza guy when we want him. And that ought not be. And so we have to be less insulated. We have to be less isolated. We have to look at people. We have to see them. We have to feel compassion for them. And then we have to do something. What can we do to help these people? Fourthly, wise communities are wisely led. Uh, Warren Biff Buffett, depending on the stock market that day, the richest or second richest man in America, said in May that the top threat facing companies in America today is poor management. And the same could be said of athletic teams or schools or bands or churches or cities or nations. You can't be a righteous, just, compassionate community if you have unjust, unrighteous, hard-hearted leaders. We have to be well-led. Uh, I read a book once about the Battle of Trafalgar, and this was in the Napoleonic Wars, where the British Navy faced off against a much larger combined force of the Spanish and the French navies. And just looking at the number of vessels, the number of cannons, the number of guns, it was going to be a horrible one-sided battle. And yet the author said the battle was determined before it ever begun because of the quality of the leadership on the vessels. Because in France and in Spain, the way you became a captain or an officer on a vessel 
is you came from an influential family who was able to pull some strings and now get you a decorated position with a lot of influence and wealth. And that's who ran the Spanish and the French vessels. The British mindset was completely different. They wanted you on the boat at the youngest possible age and you began scrubbing the deck, clearing the barnacles, learning to tie the knots, and you worked yourself up step by step, rank by rank, until very, very few earned the right to be an officer and even fewer to be a captain. By the time you were a British captain, you knew every job on that vessel because you had worked every job on that vessel. And if you wouldn't or couldn't, you weren't the captain. And he said the quality of the leadership far outweighed the differentiation in the number of ships, men, and cannons. Leadership matters. And so for those of us who are in any position of influence, a teacher in a classroom, a doctor in an office, a manager at a restaurant, an elder in a church, a city official in a community, we must lead wisely with excellence and with integrity and with justice and with righteousness and with compassion because we must be wise leaders if our community are going to be well-led. And for those of us blessed to live in a democracy who have any say in the selection of this, we have to be involved, we have to be informed, and it's far past time that we begin to vote, not just in national elections, but also in local elections. Because right now, what is happening in the school boards and in city councils and in all these things that no one thought about or just assumed they were moving a particular direction, they are now hostile to the church and will continue in that direction and it won't be good for our nation unless we begin to get informed and involved and to be more intentional in our vote and in our opportunity we have to select and appoint our representatives. Now last Thursday, or I'm sorry, last fall, we were in the midst of an election season. So on a Thursday night, we didn't advocate for a party or for a candidate, but we did discuss different criteria that can be useful in determining whom we vote for. So now that we're not in an election season and it's less controversial to do so, without advocating for a party or a person, I just wanna share 10 criteria that have been helpful for me to think through candidates as I vote for different positions. So we'll do this quickly. Criteria for evaluating candidates for public office, and this is intended to be as neutral as possible. But as Americans, will the candidate respect and defend the Constitution and the rule of law as intended by our nation's founders? In other words, will they honor their oath of office, which is something that we should expect of anyone in any office. Secondly, what course does the candidate propose to take us and do we want to go there? So if you're at DFW and you want to go to Albuquerque, you don't get on the plane that's going to Atlanta. You're at a position, you have a destination you desire to go to, which vessel will take you there? Which airline captain will move you there? Thirdly, does the candidate have the knowledge, skills, and proven experience of success to take us where he or she proposes to take us? Are they competent at their job? Fourthly, do they have the character to lead effectively? Or are they untrustworthy, immoral, short-sighted, self-seeking, or otherwise unqualified? Uh, who are their confederates? And I'm sorry, I went to Dallas Seminary. I alliterate like the Dickens, it helps me. Uh, but by this, I mean what political party or group are they affiliated with? because that matters, because they're not individuals, they're part of something. And so I do, do I believe in the platform, in the agenda, in the values of their particular affiliation? Six, community. 
Will the candidate work for the community as a whole and not be partisan or divisive? A representative should represent the district or the place that elected them, but not in a way that, is that gives disregard to the rest of the nation or the community as a whole. Can they be a consensus builder? Can they handle crisis? Because every officer is going to be faced with some unexpected crisis. How do they do in an emergency? Uh, does the candidate share my core convictions? I listed a few here, but you could add to them. Uh, where do they stand on sanctity of life, religious freedom, fiscal philosophy, gender and sexuality, national security, law and order, foreign policy? You could add the environment, you could add education, you could add immigration, but we all have core convictions. Do they share them? Especially if it's going to be a presidential candidate, uh, do we believe in whom they are likely to appoint as judges? Uh, there are those who would lead to original intent. There are those who hold to a judge advocacy but those will be an influence in your decision for a candidate. And then finally, because no one seems to ever check all these boxes until King Jesus comes back, what's the best or at least the least bad option? So if I was a Christian living in the first century and I had to pick between immoral, crazy Caligula or wicked, hateful Nero, Doggone it, I'm probably going to go with Caligula because he was mad and he was immoral, but at least he didn't burn Christians at the stake and he didn't feed them to the lions. And sometimes there's no good choice, but what's the least bad choice? So these, these are at least criteria that I use when I evaluate candidates and could be helpful. Wise communities are unified. There are six things which the Lord hates Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. Now, we need to pause right here. Think about God, almighty God, who descended on Mount Sinai with clouds and flame and thunder so that the people fell down prostrate and said, please don't make us go up and see him. And this almighty, very powerful God who is perfectly holy, hates some things. Certain things are an abomination to him, which should make them very hateful and fearsome to us because we don't want to provoke the Almighty God. And there's a correlation, as we'll see. Haughty eyes or pride, a lying tongue, deceit, hands that shed innocent blood, the violent, the aggressive, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies. And what do all of these things have in common? They all breach trust. They all are unfaithful to neighbors. They all divide communities. They all spread strife. The seventh, the culminating thing that God hates is someone who spreads strife among brothers. God is a unified triunity. The Father, Son, and the Spirit have lived in loving harmony forever and forever. And they created this world to live in diverse loving harmony. And sin disrupted that. But God is restoring that. And one day He will send His Son who will reconcile all things to Himself. And we will enjoy that once again. But right now, God hates those who spread strife. It is an abomination for those who divide communities. Which should give us pause before we spread gossip or slander 
or are contentious or harsh or aggressive or assertive or hypersensitive or insensitive or begin trying to build factions to our side in a conflict. God hates strife. And so we in our communities need to do all we can do to foster unity because the Lord loves unity. And for those who promote peace, you remember Jesus' word about them? Blessed are the peacemakers because they shall be called sons of God. They shall share the character of God who is a reconciling God, who cared enough about unity and reconciliation to send his own son to die to accomplish it. And so a wise community is a unified community. So there's an author that someone in the church turned me on to named Stephen Lawhead. And he writes historical fictions and fictions of various kinds. And he did a series called The Pendragon Cycle, which is about King Arthur. And it begins with a bard named Taliesin in Atlantis because the early seeds of Camelot and Avalon were first sown in Atlantis before it descended under the waters. And this bard has a vision that he shares with others. He says, I have seen a land shining with goodness where each man protects his brother's dignity as readily as his own, where war and want have ceased and all races live under the same law of love and honor. I have seen a land bright with truth where a man's word is his pledge and falsehood is banished, where children sleep safe in their mother's arms and never know fear or pain. I have seen a land where kings extend their hands in justice rather than reach for the sword, where mercy, kindness, and compassion flow like deep water over the land, and men revere virtue, revere truth, revere beauty above comfort, pleasure, or selfish gain. A land where peace reigns in the hearts of men, where faith blazes like a beacon from every hill, and love like a fire in every hearth where the true God is worshipped and His ways acclaimed by all. And this vision that this bard has that enters into song, he now bequeaths as a legacy to the people of Atlantis and then to Merlin and then to Arthur. And at the times that Arthur is trying to establish Camelot in the land and at the dark moments when it looks like they're going to be overrun by the Danes or defeated by the, uh, by the Irish or wicked Morgan Le Fay and her minions are doing their dark work, in the dark moments, Merlin will get out his harp and he'll remind them of the vision of the city that's going to be established. And the series runs all the way to the 20th century and into the modern day because we've yet to see Avalon arrive. And there are still the forces of righteousness and justice and compassion that are battling the forces of unrighteousness and injustice and hate. And all through the day, what keeps these people inspired is a vision of a better community that they are to hearken and to anticipate in the communities that they fight for and form and protect. And we also have a much better vision of a coming city, of a new Jerusalem that's going to replace Babylon. And it's not just a vision, it's not just a song, it's not a fictional account, it's a fact, it's a promise, it's a commitment of God Almighty. That there is going to come a time when there will no longer be any death because there will no longer be any unrighteousness. The wages of sin is death and there is coming a time when there will be no more sin. And there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain because there's no longer going to be any injustice or harshness 
or apathy or corrupt leadership. And in that day, it says that the Lord will wipe away every tear from every eye and God himself will descend and the tabernacle of God will dwell among men and there will be no need for the sun on that day because God and his son will shine in all its glory and there we will live face to face in the presence of a God who is perfectly holy and loving and just and righteous in perfect unity forever and forever and ever. That's what awaits us. And right now, until then, we are to anticipate that in the communities in which we inhabit, in our churches, in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our towns, in our states, in our nations, and especially in our Christian communities. We must be wise. We must manifest these characteristics because that's part of the way that God is hearkening sinners to his son. That's part of our witness to the world that there's a better way. There is a true God and he will love you as we are trying to love you if you will give your love to the son. Because God so loved you that he gave the son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And so Dina community and Dentonites and Texans and Americans, let's work and pray diligently to form and foster and protect wise communities that are righteous and just and compassionate and well-led and unified. Let us be salt and light. And let us pray that God's name be hallowed, that his kingdom soon be established, and that his will be done in Dina and in Denton and in Texas and America as it is in heaven. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we're so far from this. And yet your word is clear and it calls us to higher and better things. So we ask your forgiveness where we fail you as individuals, as families, as a church, as a Christian community, as a city, as a county, as a state, as a nation, as an age. And we pray that as your people, that we would not excuse our unrighteousness, that we would not condone injustice, that we would not tolerate harshness and apathy, that we would not sow seeds of strife, but that in all of us, Lord, that we would, in the areas of authority that we have, be good leaders. In the areas of influence that we can exercise, that we would appoint good leaders. And we pray for the day when that great righteous and compassionate and just and loving and perfect King comes and sets all things right. May he come soon, we ask, Lord Jesus. Amen.